Hello and welcome to another episode of the Modern Military History Podcast. As always, I am Andy, your host, and today we have uh, an incredible guest who is joining us all the way from Switzerland, uh, Jean-Luc Gassant, and he is a searcher uh, slash digger slash battlefield uh, searcher, archaeologist. He's a forensic pathologist. He's an incredible individual who does things that I could not wait to talk about on the podcast. Um, sir, thank you for coming on. How are you doing today? You're welcome. Um, I'm fine, a bit tired actually, but uh, last night uh, my chief invited me to her house and we had a bit too much wine, but other than that, I'm fine. You know, uh, honesty time <laughs> on, on the podcast. I had my friend over last night and we had a little bit of wine too. And uh, so this is evening your time. You're joining us from Switzerland. It's morning my time. Um, so again, I appreciate you coming on. Um, what I usually do with my interviews is I just kind of start from the beginning and, uh, you know, usually when I interview veterans, I, I start from the beginning of their lives and kind of work through, you got into military history very early. So I'm going to do something very similar, uh, in terms of how we go about beginning the interview here, sir, yeah. where were you born? So I was born in Ottawa, Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, and my parents, my dad is French and my mother is Canadian. And when we were, I was about 10 years old, then uh, we moved to, to Nice in Southern France, the area of Nice. Okay. Understood. Understood. I got to kind of ask, um, how was that transition being 10 years old and moving all the way from Canada to Nice? And what prompted that move? Uh, my father was always working uh, like uh, abroad. Like that's the reason he wasn't, he was in Canada in the first place. And uh, he usually changed jobs every few years and at the same time as he changed jobs he changed countries so we just uh, followed along actually i didn't mention it but between canada and france we also lived in uh, madagascar and ivory coast for a while so it was uh uh yeah we moved quite a few times oh okay this is all right this is really interesting to me i um i was born in the same city i live in and okay. I have, I've been lucky to have traveled a bit on my own time, but this sounds like an action packed, adventurous childhood. And now, so you're 10 years old, you've moved to uh, the, the South of France. Um, there was quite a bit of, I mean, my interest in military history really began in world war with world war two. And I've gotten more interested in military history in general. So my interests have like kind of as long as there have been people, they've been trying to find ways to kill each other, it seems. So yep. my interests have just kind of grown exponentially. But it seems that you moved to a place that was very steeped in military history. First, uh, Second World War, uh, the landings in the south of France occurred in August of 1944. Uh, when did you start to get interested in military history? Well, um, just before moving to France, I found a book about the Battle of Britain in my house, which was very fascinating, I thought. Mm. And then I started making model airplanes of Spitfires and Messerschmitts and that kind of thing. And uh, we moved to France. And um, you're, you are correct to say that southern France is steeped in military history, but it really isn't obvious if you don't know about it, because it's also the French Riviera mm -hmm. uh, with lots of tourists, lots of hotels. And mm -hmm. it's not really the kind of place where... World War II history is what they uh, what you hear about when you actually live there. So I lived there for several years, not 
really knowing anything about the, the local uh, World War II history. And um, they, they have a the little marginal line, you know, between uh, Italy and France uh, up in the mountains. And uh, once we went to visit one of those forts with my dad and with some friends, and then, you know, I saw these uh, empty bullet casings on the ground that were from World War II. And that was the, uh, the first time I'd ever found something from World War II still on the ground. And uh, of course, we picked a bunch of them up and stuff. And uh, then slowly but surely, I just got more and more interested in uh, World War II history. It passed from the Battle of Britain to more uh, infantry history, let's say uh, army history. And um, at first, I wasn't really interested in the southern France stuff because you always see movies about Normandy, about other yes. areas. Yes. And I was kind of disappointed, you know, to find... Oh, this is a like a German helmet, but it you know it's from southern France, not from Normandy, so it's not too exciting. And then uh, when, but then when you actually start knowing the local history, then it completely changes. Yes. Now, now I don't care about Normandy at all. I, I mean, I don't go there, I don't live there. I I haven't interviewed veterans from there. And the exact opposite happened in Nice. I started I started speaking to old people who told me, you know, this happened here and that happened there. Wow. And then I, uh, I wrote a book about this and interviewed a whole bunch of uh, American veterans, Canadian veterans, local resistance guys, local civilians. And uh, so now when I now Southern France is the place that fascinates me completely more than anywhere else. I have to agree with you. Um, I my uh, interest in uh, the invasion of Southern France, it really began with um, a personal interest in the 509th parachute infantry. And, okay. um, you know, I found obscure references to airborne operations in the Mediterranean. And it just seemed like the attention span of the collective second world war, um, you know, uh, following of, you know, not only just amateur folks, um, but also it seemed like academics, was focused on Normandy. And I think that has to do a lot with narratives that were created during the war and that perpetuated on. Um, but uh, I just got interested. And then all of a sudden there was this whole other D-Day that happened in the South of France. And it was incredible. It's incredible history to study. The fact that you lived there, you were boots on the ground and developing an interest simultaneously. To me, it sounds like paradise. What was that well, like for you? It kind of was, um, I'd say, from the period between uh, about 2000 and 2010. Uh, you could literally, I mean, I was a student, so I had lots of free time. And you could literally go to any village and uh, speak to an old guy on the bench. And he would, he would tell you about what happened, you know, uh, the day his town was liberated by the, by the Allied troops. Wow. And you could uh, look up these units, like the 509th that you mentioned, or the 517th, and they still had, you know, 10, 20, 30 guys alive from each company. So you could uh, call them up and say, you know, do you remember the day that uh, this happened and that happened? And, uh, of course, most wouldn't remember, but then you'd always find a couple of guys who would remember really well. And uh, so, yeah, it was a very, uh, very interesting uh, <clears throat> time period. And, uh, yeah, kind of paradise, especially southern France is a, is a bit of a paradise on its own. I mean, yes. sunny weather, very nice countryside. And, uh, yeah, so it was paradise in, the, in one way. Yes. If I, uh, I found um, at, a local, uh, at a local Militaria show, I used to be really into collecting Militaria. 
it was really a big part of how I approached my passion with military history. I've, uh, I've been finding other ways personally to interact with military history that in a way fulfills me a little bit more. And especially since I moved into my own apartment, you know, money's going elsewhere. Who knows, maybe when I get a, a full-time, uh, when I get settled into a career and settled into a home, um, collecting might come back. But uh, without going too far into that, um, I found a little grouping of somebody who had gone through the south of France. And yep. there was a pamphlet called the, if I remember correctly, now, now I'm, this is my French coming through, so watch out. Cota de Azur, is that yep. correct? The, the Blue Coast. Okay, thank you. How do you pronounce it? Uh, Cote d'Azur. Cote d'Azur. Okay. Yep. Cote d'Azur. We're, we're getting there. Thank you. Um, it seems like a beautiful place. I would love to go there. So coming back to your childhood, coming back to you as, a, as moving into being a teenager, I have to touch on this story because this is incredible. I still have the collecting bug. So you found something pretty cool hanging on the wall of a restaurant. And uh, I'm talking about the, the helmet. And yeah, I was wondering yeah. if you could share that story because I think it's pretty cool. And it shows how you were starting to interact with military history, um, you know, even when you were young. Yeah. Well, the, the first thing I have to say is that uh, I found that helmet, I think, when I was 16, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, at the time, I hadn't read any books about uh, the invasion of southern France. I really knew uh, next to nothing about it. But luckily, just a few months before I found that helmet, I'd gone to a local collector's house, a guy who, you know, goes through garbage dumps and old houses and stuff like that. And he had quite a bit of this American uh, southern France paratrooper stuff. And he was showing me, see, they have a this typical camouflage paint and this and that. So when I went in, so when I found this helmet, the story is that uh, there's something called the Hash House Harriers. It's a, a running club that exists all over the world, run by British people. And every Saturday or every Sunday, they, they organize a run in some completely obscure village and uh, they make a trail with flour on the ground and stuff like that. Anyway, I went to that with my family and my dad had, had injured his foot cutting a cutting the palm tree he had a, a spike from the palm tree going to his foot so he couldn't run and um i was on the run and for some reason i just felt like you know there's, some, there's something from the war here I, I don't know why so i was looking you know in the bushes between the trees i just felt there's, there was going to be something there and after the run we got back to the village and uh my dad had waited in the village the whole time and i said did you see something from the war and he said oh yeah there's a helmet hanging on the wall in the restaurant so I went in the restaurant and I saw this helmet with uh, this camouflage paint and this mark of the net on it and stuff. And uh, if I had seen it just a few months before, I would have thought, you know, this doesn't look like it's from World War II. It looks like uh, something from the Vietnam War or something because uh, World War II helmets didn't have this kind of camouflage. Luckily, I'd been to this collector's house and understood that these things were basically the holy grails. So I understood what I was looking at. And uh, I asked the restaurant owner if he wanted to sell it. I told him I collected these things and whatever. And uh, he 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 wasn't a very friendly guy. I, and he 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 wasn't selling it basically. So I left without the helmet. And uh, then uh, I mean I went back there maybe a month later with other World War II helmets and proposed to exchange it. 
like called his wife once and said, please, like, can you convince him to sell this helmet and whatever? He like I said, I was his uh, wife. I love that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. get the woman involved and then things I, start yeah. to happen. <laughs> yeah. So I was 16. I was really desperate. And uh, one day he just, I, he didn't, he said, no, like I'm, I'm keeping it. And then one day he came to my house, rang the doorbell and uh, he didn't have anything in his hands as far as I saw. And then he pulled the helmet out from behind his back and he said, okay, I'll sell it to you, whatever. Aww. So uh, at the time, I bought it for 500 French francs, which was a, which was a lot of money. That's what I got for my birthday once per year. Mm-hmm. But now it's a completely ridiculous sum when you think about it. It's like uh, sixty or seventy dollars, basically. Yeah, um, I'll just say you did well. Yeah. You did well on that investment. Um, those helmets are. I don't know what it is about helmets, but helmets seem to draw a lot of collectors' eyes. And there's something about them. Um, and it's something I've thought about for a while, but again, we're talking about other things today. Um, they seem to drink, bring a lot of attention and they seem to bring a lot of money. So I think you did well with that investment. And yeah, uh, yeah it, there's, I, I saw a video that you put on YouTube and uh, if people want to follow you, I'm going to link your YouTube as well in the, in the description here because you post really cool stuff and that's how I found you. Uh, Thanks. Just uh, I'll interrupt you for a second because this was just the first part of the of the story. Oh sure, sure, sure. Please continue. Because then the point is that um, so I, I told people what this helmet looked like, but I didn't say what it is. It's actually a helmet from the five seventeenth parachute infantry, which is one of the units that jumped into southern France on uh, on August fifteenth. And uh, on the helmet, uh, there's a carving in French. It says "Souvenir of August twenty fourth, nineteen forty four," and that turned out being the day that that village. It's called Courme had been liberated by the 517th, by the 3rd Battalion, to be more precise, or the 3rd Battalion was the first to get there. And then on the helmet, it also has a name written, which was Moles. And uh, so the lucky thing, the 517th is a popular unit, so they have a, a website with lots of pictures, lots of documents scanned. And on the website, I went through their whole list, and I found that there was only one guy called Moles. His name was Marvin Moles, and he was in the 3rd Battalion of the 517th, so it would make sense that he had gone through that village of Quorum. And then I looked him up in the white pages, and since his name was pretty uncommon, Marvin Moles, well, uh, I found him and I called him, and uh, he was a bit surprised at first. He said, like, my my helmet got blued off my head in the bulge and stuff like that. And then I told him, you know, I'm in southern France. This was before the bulge, so maybe you, it's another helmet. And then uh, he understood that, you know, the American, American soldiers were very wasteful with their equipment. I mean, they usually threw lots of stuff away. All the all the French civilians always say, you know, when the Americans went through, then we found helmets, guns, grenades, yes. everything just lying around. So uh, it was August. There wasn't much fighting, and uh, apparently, lots of paratroopers threw away their helmets pretty quickly. So anyway, I invited Marvin Moles to come back to France. That was in 2004, and so he came to France and he saw his helmet, and then we we visited the village, and uh, yeah, so it was a, a pretty unique experience. To, um, researching items is always interesting. And the, having a named item that you find on the battlefield and still having the veteran alive is something uh, that has now become pretty much impossible, but it was always yeah. rare, I think. And he had a good memory. He told me everything. I recorded everything. I included all his story in my book. Yeah. And so it was really um, the perfect story, like perfect helmet, perfect condition, perfectly documented. And uh, with the veteran's pictures, the veteran's story with everything. It's uh, so yeah, my most... Well prized possession i'm i uh well first of all i want to say this uh 
yes, yes, the helmet is cool. The 517, they used uh, this specific kind of helmet net, the shrimp net, as it's called in, in colloquial collector nerdology, um, <laughs> the shrimp net. And then they had engineers come out to the airfield uh, before they jumped, before they boarded the airplanes. And they literally just sprayed these guys with, with kind of camouflage paint. So these helmets had paint just sprayed over the helmet. And, it's, it's, so this, and they had specific chin straps on these exactly. helmets in, they modified them because there weren't enough paratroop specific helmets. See the nerdology is deep here with me. And, and I think also with you um, in yes. terms of understanding, you know, that this helmet itself is really cool, but, but, I think it's cooler that you met the veteran and that you of did course. the work to get him out, record his story. I've gotten a couple World War II vets on my podcast. I'm very proud of that. And um, we are reaching uh, an inflection point right now in terms of um, it's just very, very difficult to get people from that age now Um to a be able to come on the show my show any show and and unfortunately b remember um what in in enough detail that can help us understand the events so the work you did there i think now and then again we're touching on something that i'm really passionate about and this is the ability for artifacts to transcend the temporal divide between the current and the past, the present and the past, and get people through interacting with physical objects to be able to perhaps connect with the past more deeply than if they were just say reading a book. Um, and the fact that you took, you're a writer, you interview veterans, you're also a collector. I, it's something I strive to do all of these things. Um, I think you're doing a great job and, um, what you did with, with Mr. Moles is incredible. Um, hopefully soon we'll be featuring uh, this particular helmet on the, the virtual museum I'm going to be launching on my website. Um, so people can keep an eye out for that. There's also a video you did of it on your YouTube channel. So I just wanted to commend you for doing that because yes, the item is cool. Yes. You know, a lot of people are really into collecting world war II paratrooper helmets. It's its own, sometimes horrific subgenre of uh, military history. Um, but I want to keep moving here because your relationship with military history continued after you were 16, 17, mobbing around the south of France, finding incredible objects just hanging on the walls, which is just mind-blowing to me. That didn't happen every day, just to be specific. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, in my, in my mind, it's like a candy land and you're walking around just scooping stuff up. But when you're 18, if I, if I got this correct, when you're 18, you took a trip to Russia to do what exactly? And how did that happen? Well, I heard about people looking for digging stuff up in Southern France. Since I was uh, 17, I didn't have a metal detector yet, and I didn't have a car, I didn't have a driver's license, I couldn't go to the places where you could actually look for stuff. And then I heard that in Russia, you know, they're still finding bodies of German soldiers, bodies of Russian soldiers, and I mean, not one or two, I mean, you go there for two weeks and they find 150 bodies, for example. And that to me sounded completely fascinating. 
So I got in touch with uh, a German organization that's called the VBGO, VBGO. And um, I, I guess I must have, without realizing that I must have harassed them into letting me, <laughs> letting me come and, uh, and join them. So when I was 18, we went to, to Stalingrad, to the battlefield there. And we, uh, so we looked for bodies of, uh, it was supposed to be German soldiers, but the problem is that uh, German bodies are always buried with a helmet, with a belt, well, not always, but you find them with belt buckles, helmets, identification tags, and all that stuff is worth, you know, a certain amount of money. So in Russia, they had uh, basically local diggers didn't want people coming from Germany and finding these German bodies and then uh, preventing them from taking the stuff and selling it. So there was a bit of competition, let's say. But we did, uh, they brought us to places they had already dug up in the past and we found the bones all mixed together and a few ID tags in the middle and we picked them all up. And in the end, on paper, we had found 115 bodies, but actually only a few of those bodies would, had been untouched. Most were just... Uh, a jumble of bones that we picked out of the out of former mass graves, basically. I now this is so fascinating to me. A million things are. I've prepared questions. I've I've prepared for this, but um, I really want to first touch on the fact that this is an interesting thing for an 18 year old to be doing on his uh, summer holiday. Um, and I just also want to touch on the fact that um, you are now, if I know that if this is correct, you're a forensic pathologist by career. Is that yeah, correct? exactly? Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so morbidity, it seems the has <laughs> taken a hold with you. How did that happen? And did it start in when you were 18 years old in in uh in russia digging up skeletons as you know as your holiday i'm i'm really not sure how it started i remember when i was a kid i mean when i was maybe three or four years old there was a huge yeah. uh train crash in alberta i think mm. and uh i, I was completely fascinated by, by that <laughs> train crash and i was like you know taking my bureau train and stimulating the crash and stuff yeah and i was always interested uh when you know on tv they were speaking about some war zone or some uh mm. death or some murder and stuff like that and uh, I didn't really think about what I wanted to do as an adult. And I wasn't a good student and stuff. And I didn't mm -hmm. think I could do medicine. And then uh, when uh, I was about 15, 16, one day, I thought, you know, maybe I could try doing medicine. And what seemed interesting to me was forensic medicine. The other things that seemed interesting were maybe, you know, working in the, as a crime scene technician or maybe being in the army, whatever. And I tried doing the highest thing i mean the best paid and the one where you can actually travel more and stuff like that and that was uh so i ended up uh being a forensic pathologist which is what i am now but when i went to russia that first time for example i hadn't even started st studying medicine yet uh before going into medicine i went to engineering school for one year and uh so i, I yeah i, I was I, it had nothing to do with with medicine yeah I, but it's more like i went into medicine because i was interested in these dead world war ii bodies but my main interest is the world war ii it's not medicine let's say understood now um i'm, I'm gonna ask uh for the benefit of those listening would you please define um the role of a forensic pathologist and and what you do day to day yeah in your job a forensic pathologist is basically a doctor who uh who 
he doesn't work for the police or for the prosecutor, but he, he works when the police have a question or the prosecutor has a question uh, to help them in their, uh, in their investigations, they, they need a forensic pathologist. And basically what that means in practice is that when somebody gets murdered, when somebody commits suicide, when a body is found in the forest, when there's a car accident, when there's a violent death, then the forensic pathologist does an autopsy and uh, his job is to say what the cause of death is to maybe uh, say this death looks natural, but it's actually suspicious or the other way around. You know, this girl who uh, had a fight with her boyfriend, well, actually, uh, we found that uh, she has a natural cause of death. So no, mm. her boyfriend didn't kill her. Mm. And we also see victims of rape, victims, uh, people who were shot but survived or had fights in the street but survived. So yeah. whenever a prosecutor needs to know what exactly happened to this uh, body or what exactly happened to this victim, uh, he has to have a forensic pathologist given the medical information, the relevant medical information. For example, if somebody's um, got stabbed and is at the hospital, we go and we see like, was this stabbing serious or not? You know, did he yeah. almost die or was it just something completely, uh, you know, a scratch? And then we mm -hmm. give that information to the prosecutor so he can decide what to do with uh, with uh, the attacker, the guilty person. Wow. Um, well. I know we have limited time today, but a million questions have come up already about that. Um, interesting and fascinating. But what's really good, see, I'm building my own case here as to why you are highly credentialed to be the one going over um, because and, and, and finding people on the on the Eastern Front. So you started when you were 18, but this is something you continued right up to the pandemic. Is that correct? Uh, I didn't go every year. So I went when I was 18. That was 2001. And then I went in 2005 to Russia, but not to find bodies. I just contacted a guy who was looking for helmets and things like that. And he, I can tell you, I can go into details. Uh, basically, <laughs> people, people were saying like you're selling, he, he had an internet site where he was constantly selling all these helmets in great condition dug up from swampy areas. Mm -hmm. And people were saying, you know, this is stolen from graves and stuff yeah. on these forums. So he said, look, if you think I'm staying from graves, just come and see what we do. Join us mm -hmm. uh, for free. And uh, lots of people said, oh, yeah, I'm going to come. I'm going to come. And uh, I said, I can't come because I have no money and stuff. But in the end, I had a bit of money to pay the airplane ticket. And so I, in the end, I was the only one who actually went there. Yeah. And I saw what they were doing. It was really interesting. Mm -hmm. These guys were, I mean, what they were doing was, I don't know if it was illegal because it's in Russia, but it wasn't official, let's say. Yeah. And uh, But they were, they were professionals. So they knew exactly where to look. They knew exactly how to dig. It was really impressive to see them. They know, mm -hmm. how, to, they know how to find things better than probably any professional archaeologist or anything because mm -hmm. they actually do that as a living sure year after year you know that's incredible yeah and then i didn't go to russia again until uh, i think it was 2014 a friend of mine just uh, found an article and he said oh yeah you know wouldn't it be cool to go back to russia like you did before and then i thought yeah actually it would be <laughs> so uh, I, I got in contact with the group and went into this swampy area miasnoibor and then the year after, I went to Volgograd and got into contact with the people there. So Volgograd is Stalingrad. Mm -hmm. And uh, since then, so 2014 to 2019, I went every summer. Yeah. And then the corona started and they, they cut out. They, yeah. they didn't give us visas anymore. Yeah. So uh, 20 and 21, I didn't do anything. Copy that. Any of that. I, um, the war in the East 
was something that I did not come into contact with very much as I studied about the Second World War. Um, and, and a big part of that was that I was really interested in, in things like the invasion of the South of France. I was interested in things where my countrymen had been. Um, when I first traveled to Europe, uh, most of my time was spent um, in Western Europe. I, I briefly went to Poland to visit Auschwitz-Birkenau, um, but that was like the only time in kind of the East, if you could even call Poland that, um, that I spent. But uh, after I came into contact with the reality that I didn't know as much as maybe I should as somebody who wants to become a military historian about the Eastern Front, I began to read and I began to learn and the Eastern front was one of the most brutal apocalyptic occurrences our, I think our collective civilization has ever seen. It was its own just meat grinder um, in ways that was driven by two totalitarian regimes just throwing themselves at each other. You have what I would, what I would argue is a unique and well-informed perspective on the reality of what that was. I've watched some of your videos and I reached out to you um, because recently you put a video up where you were uh, working to um, dig fallen soldiers. Um, I think it was both German and Russian folks that, that you were finding um, this time around in the video you posted. But what really fascinates me is that as you are finding these guys, you're looking for identification. You're trying your best to identify these folks. Sometimes the bodies are intermingled. I'm going to let you get into that. But you're also noticing and documenting for the camera, this guy had his legs amputated. I'm gonna hold up the femur and show the saw cut. If anybody wants to kind of shed simplistic narratives, idealized misconceptions about war is like, I highly recommend at least watching some of your videos, listening to this interview, um, and if, if they, if they can, if they can scrape up their, their money, um, you know, maybe, maybe go volunteer like you do. Um, but you also have mentioned, um, something that for a long time I've wanted to talk about, which, and I'm glad you're here and we'll get into this, uh, which is kind of this interesting ecosystem of people in Russia who dig stuff up for profit. And I've seen videos of guys digging stuff up and they get a helmet that's in nice shape, but there's a skull in it <laughs> and they take the helmet and they just kind of chuck the skull. <laughs> I've seen that. And I've had kind of questions about um, the morality of that perhaps, but then also the understanding of the economic situation that would drive people to do that. So it's nuanced. So I'd love to get into that, but first just kind of pre preempting you for that conversation, which will come. Yeah. I want to ask you, about, you know, you're at a dig site and I really want to kind of see if you can take us with you through the process of going to a dig site and be finding their 
people there and then beginning to exhume them. Can you walk us through that almost like you're taking us with you? You're taking me and the audience with you on that. Yeah, that well, the way it, it depends, like what country you're in, what, uh, what the information you have is. But when I go to Russia, uh, we have n- no specific information. Uh, what happens is that I, I join a, a group of Russians over there and uh, they have permissions to dig in such and such an area for this summer, let's say. And then uh, we just go over the battlefield with uh, metal detectors and uh, with these probes that they use to, to, to feel if there's anything buried underground. And we just basically search uh, randomly. Uh, they also have um, German reconnaissance pictures taken during the war that they match up with current GPS. So you can be in a field where there's nothing and then they can say, okay, all the trenches were in this area. So let's mm. search more, more over here, you know? Wow. And, um, and that's the way it generally happens. But then sometimes you have more specific information. Like one of these videos, uh, there's a scene where you see, I think seven or eight bodies all intermingled. That's in a village called the Vertiaci, uh, which was near, near, near Stalingrad. And in that area, we had very specific information. Was that the, the information was that within the German, uh, the German pocket of surrounded soldiers, they had a little Russian POW camp. And basically everybody in that camp died yeah. because even the Germans were, started dying of hunger, hunger by the end. So all these guys died. And uh, then uh, what happened in Russia was that they just buried the bodies in the nearest hole. So when we were there, um, we went to this forest and we could still slightly see the outlines of trenches and foxholes. And literally every hole we dug in had at least one body inside it, you know? So uh, that was a different kind of situation, you know? And then you can also have situations, which was this, uh, this German with amputated legs, where you know from the German archives that there's supposed to be a field cemetery in this village. And then uh, you find a witness who tells you where it is. And then you know, okay, there's supposed to be 25 guys buried here. So I found one. And uh, so it means the others must be right beside him. And then you, you look for them like that. Mm-hmm. But that's the exception. That's what the German War Graves Commission does. Uh, the usual searching in Russia is just uh, combing the battlefield with, uh, with metal detectors and looking at the old aerial pictures and uh, hoping to find uh, bodies. And finding bodies is the exception, of course. You usually find... Uh, uh, the most, of course, is ammunition because when people find it, they just leave it there. So you find shells, you might find a few helmets, you find junk, you know, pieces of who knows what metal. Yeah. And then, then one day you're lucky and you dig, you see a helmet, then you move the helmet, you see there's a skull inside. And then you try to look what direction the soldier's lying in, enlarge the hole to try to find her, the whole body. And then quite often in Russia, there's not just one, there's usually several that are, that are together. Mm. How many bodies would you say you've personally participated in uh, either, uh, you know, digging up and and moving to a proper cemetery um, or perhaps it's repatriation back to either Germany? Um, They're never repatriated. Okay, I see. They're always reburied on local cemeteries. Um, I see. uh, Maybe maybe 200 or something like that, you know. Wow. It it, it depends. Um, This year when we were digging in the prison camp, for example, uh, like like you saw, right? you dig one hole and there's there's eight bodies in a single hole. You know, then you dig another hole right beside and there's five bodies, yeah. and then another one there's two bodies. So just that, I think me and my friend uh, we found twenty five bodies in three or four days or something like that. Oh my god! But but then last time I went, we were looking for two weeks and uh, I only found one one location where there were three bodies buried. 
you know, so it's something... the, oh, sorry, the rest of the time you're just searching and you find uh, you find uh, shells and things like that. Mm-hmm. What you, you know, have to understand from these videos is that it's a concentrated. Yes. Yes. You know, as usual, you're, when you're I, editing when them I, together. Yeah, I mean, the last video you saw is the best parts of five or six old videos. Yeah. That are themselves the best parts of two weeks of digging. You know, so mm-hmm. what you see is only the the most interesting moments uh, of actually a three or four month period. Walk us through. Um, we'll do something similar here with this next question. We'll put together a yeah. greatest a greatest hits of finding bodies. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I want to ask good. you, as you look back on your career doing this, your your informal career. Um, what are some things that immediately stick out in terms of findings that will stay with you and have stayed with you? Well, the main thing is that in my open quotation marks village, because it's not my village where I'm born, but the village I grew up in Southern France, that's the, I found a mass grave of 14 Germans in that village. And that was a place that I knew perfectly well because I lived there. And uh, it was on this French Riviera, and I spoke to people who knew the bodies were there. I spoke to people whose fathers had buried the bodies. I spoke to the Americans and Canadians who had been in combat with these soldiers. Mm -hmm. And I found the families of the soldiers. And so that there, it was really like, I knew the area. I found the bodies. I found the families. I found the people who shot them and killed them, whatever. And so it was really a whole thing together that made it, let's say, incredible. Whereas in Russia... uh, I mentioned finding 25 bodies, but not a single one of them was identified, you know? Yeah. So of course it's very interesting. Of course it's, it has a, it's a bit emotional and stuff finding bodies, but then it didn't go anywhere. You know, you didn't find the yeah. children, you didn't find the grandchildren. So um, of course the, the, the Southern France case remains the most outstanding one. And then the other thing that I would say is quite outstanding is one, uh, Somebody from the German War Graves Commission told me, you know, you're a forensic pathologist. If you want, you can come and see how we how we look for these German bodies in Croatia. And this was these cases where it was field cemeteries. And um, so this is the places where we found bodies that had legs amputated, that had uh, surgical drains in their wounds, that had uh, uh, chest drains, things like that. And that was... Um, and, uh, you know, one body was cut in half, one body was blown to pieces. And... Um, it was yeah. extremely interesting, and it's also quite shocking to say, like, look, this guy, he has both his legs cut off by a surgeon. Yeah. Then they just dumped him in this hole, and now 80 years went by, and nobody ever came to look for him. Yeah. So that was also something that sticks out a lot, more than just these random bodies on the battlefield yeah. where you might not... I mean, when you, when you see that a doctor and people actually tried to save the guy and didn't manage it, it adds another touch of horror to it, let's say. Yeah, well, the archaeology is revealing the past it's revealing those events and they've been hidden by time and a couple feet of dirt and you're coming along and, and sharing those stories. What are some misconceptions about war? And you can get as specific as this as possible war on the Eastern front war in the South of France war in general. What are some misconceptions that maybe you had before you started doing this, or you've seen people, um, in, in perhaps in the golden cathedral of internet chat forums where everybody seems to know everything about anything. Um, and, you know, even if they don't, what are some misconceptions that either you personally or that you see people have, have you put to bed? Have you, um, 
have oh, you disproved God. through actually exhuming these bodies and seeing the horrors of what these guys, what happened to these guys? I'd say one of the first things that happened is uh, when I started finding Germans is realizing like these aren't, you know, just a bunch of crazy bloodthirsty Nazis. This guy is a 17 year old guy from uh, some village in Poland who has a Polish name and who maybe didn't speak German. And you, you contact the families and you see this, this is the guy with his three children. And uh, you start realizing, um, well, yeah, this whole vision that people have of German World War II soldiers, they say Nazi this and Nazi that. Yeah, well, there were people like that, but uh, it was also basically just an enlisted army where people got drafted, whether they liked it or not. Oh, yeah. uh, they had horrible casualties. They had a horrible experience. And um, and they were also people suffering a lot yeah. and their families suffered a lot. So that I kind of it, it changed my uh, my my vision of uh, of uh, of German soldiers being you know these uh, robots yeah. who just spent their time uh, killing people and uh, and whatever. Yeah. And um, when I was speaking to to civilians in southern France, they they actually usually spoke more negatively of the French resistance than they did of the Germans, because really? the the Germans were usually in southern France. It wasn't a very violent area. They were. They were usually quite respectful. They did execute quite a few resistance people, but they actually were members of the resistance. They weren't just random civilians. And uh, they were usually, they weren't allowed to steal things. They weren't allowed to rape. I mean, they were they were under tight discipline. Whereas the resistance, uh, they always had to steal food. Uh, they, some people, I mean, they weren't under any, any, any kind of discipline. So they did quite a lot of things that were, that, that were not resistance actions, but simple crimes or revenge or personal mm -hmm. stories. So, um, so yeah, people had uh, usually quite reserved opinions about the about the resistance. Fascinating. And uh, you're mentioning. So, what about um, the other thing? I'd say misconceptions. Misconceptions. People. Well, people. I mean, I guess once you're an adult, you realize that. Or if you study the problem, you'll realize that's not true. But as a child or as a teenager, you think that war is just, you know, uh, attacking every day and uh, action all the time and stuff. And then when you're in these battlefields, you see these trenches and you yeah. you know that the guys were sitting there for three months without doing anything. Yeah. You can see by things you find that they were bored out of their minds. You know, they're building things with their hands, making trench art. Condoms. Uh, condoms in a condoms surprising that... amount of pockets. Talk about <laughs> yeah, humanizing yeah. these people. Yeah, yeah. I noticed well, the, that in your videos. It's like, oh, here's another condom. <laughs> yeah, finding condoms is pretty, well, obviously it's pretty funny. Uh, first of all, people don't realize condoms existed back then. Okay. Secondly, they wonder why would the soldiers need condoms? <laughs> but, you know, soldiers, uh, of course, they're going to have sex with local girls. They're going to have sex with prostitutes. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and if they get an STD, then they're going to be taken out of the front lines for a bit. So they're going to be happy to get it. So I'm not sure what the German army regulations were, yeah. but I was recently reading the British regulations for Operation Dragoon, and they said, you know, every, every soldier has to have three condoms, and people with STDs will not be taken out of the lines. They'll have to stay with mm -hmm. their unit. So uh, it's just a way of protecting the soldiers from yeah. uh, falling sick. Sure. And, uh, not, and removing their excuse as well for maybe yeah. being sick and away from the front lines. Yeah. Talk about humanizing, uh, humanizing these people. Um, I just, I mean, I mentioned to you my, my fascination with the 509th parachute infantry and when they were still called the second battalion of the 503rd, when they were the first American 
battalion, parachute battalion to go overseas. When they're in England, apparently these guys are having quite a few escapades of their own. And their doctor, their surgeon recorded that there was quite a few STDs going around. There were quite a few children being born and directives had to come down from, you know, the colonel who was in charge to, to help tighten up some of these escapades, some of these fraternizations, we should say. And then apparently also when these guys took off to take their 1500 mile journey, um, the longest airborne drop flight from the Second World War, and there was a reason it didn't happen again. It was disastrous. The planes broke up their formation. But anyways, again, the nerdology is deep with me. Um, the women lined up. There were a lot of women who came to the, the airfield to say goodbye to these guys. There are a lot of broken hearts um, and some marriages. Uh, but anyways, soldiers are soldiers. And it seems that what you are disproving, the misconceptions, we should say, I, I would say, I want to I just share my phrasing of what I think you're saying. I think the simplistic narratives that people have concerning war fall apart the more deeply you learn about it. And then you start to understand the nuance of the past. And that's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable to look at the millions of people who died in the Second World War and not see a statistic, but see that number representing individuals. So it's easy for people, myself included, I am subject to this and I do my best through Parse watching your videos and things like that, to try to disprove this, that these were people. They had condoms in their pockets. Doctors tried to save them. There's an incredible book written by Christopher Browning, who's an American professor at the University of Washington in Washington State called Ordinary Men. And this book is, a, uh, I, I featured it on my podcast years ago when I was just starting my podcast and it was mainly book reviews. This followed the Reserve Police Battalion 101 as they moved through Poland and were the uh, first foot soldiers in um, Hitler's uh, Holocaust, his, his final solution. And this book documents some of the things they did, but more importantly, this historian, Christopher Browning, through an incredible amount of primary sources, documented indisputably how these actions were affecting these people. And if you read this book, you begin to understand the true horror of things like the Holocaust, the true horror of the Eastern Front. It wasn't just robots committing atrocities. It was people, and in many cases, people just like you and me who were forced to do horrible things. Like the German army was... Uh, especially getting in later into the war, conscript force, uh, ex, you know, people who weren't even German forming units because they were so desperate for people. When you start to believe that, you start to understand the nuance of war and it gets really uncomfortable, but I think yeah. war is uncomfortable. You know, I've spoken to a lot of uh, veterans. I've been interviewed them and also spoke to a lot of French civilians. And it's very rare that one of them really had hatred towards mm -hmm. the Germans, you know? They didn't like them, of course, but nobody was was hating them. And uh, sometimes on the YouTube videos I have, you, you have people that comment that are obviously born 
way after the war and they're saying oh yeah like they got these germans who can you know uh, burn their bones or, uh, or do, why, why are you digging them they don't deserve anything these people who, who didn't actually live through it are much more hateful than yeah. actual victims of, uh, of of that time you know which is uh, it shows the kind of uh post-war propaganda or narrative or exaggerations that occurred and yeah. how you know history is oriented in a certain way yeah well um simplistic narratives simplistic narratives um predominate how a lot of people think about the past and especially the second world war there's something about the second world war and then i also wanted to touch on the fact that there weren't photographers at a field hospital there the german Goebbels did not dispatch propagandists to go create high quality photography of people getting their legs amputated and then getting thrown in a hole. That documentation is scarce and it's scarce for a reason. If people, perp if people at the time understand how horrible the war is, are they going to buy war bonds? You know, if they think about the enemy as people, are they going to enlist to go kill them? These simplistic narratives drive events that happened at the time. And then as more time passes and they're not challenged and they're not looked at deeply, they fester and they grow and then they become kind of an encompassing narrative. So I think what you do is just, it does a lot to help people understand the reality. Um, and I want to oh, ask, yeah. oh, go ahead, go ahead. When you show the people an individual example, you say like, look, this is this guy, this is his picture. Uh, this is his him when we dug him up and see this is the hole in his skull from the shell fragment yeah and this is the letter that uh that his family received this is the letter his sister sent to the red cross 20 years later asking where his body was uh then people realize all of a sudden oh like well instead of just being a statistic like you said all of a sudden because it was an actual person an actual face yeah. and of course you can't then i mean you can't see the see it in the same way anymore what was the main cause of death that you see from people uh, well usually it's uh, shrapnel shrapnel ones i mean fragment ones and uh that's i mean that's what i see on the battlefield but you all you have to do is look at a statistic done by the done, done the time it's usually 80 or 70 or 90 percent uh, killed by uh, by fragments yeah. by sh shell fragments then of course it depends if it was some anti-partisan situation then it was more gunshot wounds because it was more close fighting and sure. ambushes and things like that it's fascinating to uh, watch in one of your videos, you have the skull next to the helmet and there's a little pea-sized hole in the helmet. There's a little pea-sized hole in the front of the skull. And then you say, as the earth falls out of the helmet, look at this little pea-sized piece of metal. That's what killed this guy. Yeah, I yeah. think that's fascinating. A lot of people see in the movies because the movies seem to predominate how at least people in my country interact with military history which is something i'd like to see changed but um at least in the movies it's mostly people shooting each other and what again you know there's a lot of frontline trenches there's a lot of time spent in single areas shell fire killed the most people and it's fascinating to see that come through in your videos because you're a forensic pathologist and yeah, you're yeah. doing this work what's some of the most uh on the other side of the spectrum what's some of the oddest things you've seen as the cause of death just a second I'll, just before saying that i'll, I'll, I'll okay. say something about what you said about these uh causes of death uh, another misconception misconception is kind of like you know 
I'm going to be well trained and I'm going to be a commando and, uh, you know, nobody's going to be able to shoot me because I'm going to be hiding properly. Look, the reality is you're sitting in a hole uh, with artillery falling on you. It doesn't yeah. matter how well trained you are. Uh, if you don't have luck, a shell will fall on your hole and you'll be killed and that's it. And there's nothing you can do about it. You know, yeah. the training part is that you're actually in a hole and not just uh, sitting on the ground. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, people might not realize that a lot of what happens is just luck, basically luck of the draw, you know, this guy beside you got killed. This guy didn't, what was the difference? Nothing. You know, you're just right. standing there and whatever. So what was your question? What's the most strange, uh, cause yes. of death, you said? yes. Look, um, on these bones, I never saw any anything particularly strange because it's always either shrapnel or either either bullet wounds, you know. So, uh, or else you don't know. You just see the skull is fractured, and without spending an hour or two hours cleaning everything and gluing it back together, you can't see what caused the damage. Yeah. So I didn't see anything particularly surprising. I did. Uh, it's not a, directly answering your question, but I did interview. Uh, or did research about a case in southern France on August 15th where the Germans had captured about 60 French commandos that landed near Cannes and they sent apparently four soldiers with about 30 of those commandos who were unwounded from Cannes to, Gra to Grasse, the nearby uh, city where the division was located. And local French guys said, let's go and attack those four Germans and liberate these commandos. So uh, I think apparently the germans didn't have any weapons and the french just had i think a couple of pistols and what the french version was um this this guy unfortunately died before i interviewed him but he mm -hmm. was interviewed by a local paper so it said he grabbed this german they started fighting and they fell to the ground and then he said he picked up a rock and and killed the german by bashing his head in and i thought you know i looked through all the lists of killed germans i didn't manage to find anybody who who matched and i figured you know this must be uh, yeah. another one of these exaggerated stories I did find a German who maybe matched, you know, he, he, his official date of death was August 16th. So it was wrong by one day. And, but you couldn't, but I couldn't, I couldn't check this information. The French guy said this story, the German uh, might match with might not. But now in 2019, they opened the German archives. So you can actually say like, I want to know like such and such a guy, how did he die? What unit was he in and everything? And you can get that information. So this German, I thought might match. I asked for his file. And you know, the French guy said the truth. The cause of death was uh, skull fractures murdered by the partisans or murdered by the terrorists. So uh, yeah. that was a, that's, that's a very surprising cause of death, I think, for the 20th century war, having your skull uh, smashed with a stone by somebody else. Yeah. That, that's a surprising cause of death. And it's confirmed by the German archives themselves. Wow. And that you did the work to get that. Some of the most incredible stuff is going through primary documents and sorting yeah, yeah, through yeah. that to find the truth. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Very interesting. Very interesting. I would like to ask you, and I mentioned that we were going to get into this. You, you know, these, these unsanctioned digging operations that are yeah. happening in Russia, I don't know if they should be called illegal digging operations or if they should be called unsanctioned operations. What is known is that for years, YouTube had been recommending to me these, you know, massive videos put together by Russian named uh, YouTube accounts of groups of mostly young people, my age, I would say, um, like wading through swamps, finding stuff. Oh, here's a live bomb. All right, we'll chuck that, you know, here's a helmet. And then what they do with it 
is not very certain, but how they're treating the remains that they do find versus how they're treating the artifacts. The artifacts are always the YouTube thumbnail. That's what people are clicking on, the artifacts. And so that's, and those are the focus of the videos. So you can deduce that's the focus of what they're doing. It's not person-centered. They're not trying yeah. to identify these bodies. They're trying to get stuff. What's the real situation in Russia regarding that kind of thing? Well, I'd say um, when the communism ended, uh, people started digging this stuff up. And uh, I think it was most of them really just purely for money. And uh, the ones I saw in Stalingrad in 2001, I mean, they, they weren't rich people. They weren't intellectual people. They were just people like, like instead of being a garbage man, uh, you're one of the guys who digs up German helmets, you know. Mm -hmm. And they weren't rich by any means. They were yeah. just people who, who were trying to, trying to earn a living any way they could. And uh, they happened to end up doing this digging stuff. Yeah. Now, since, and, and at, at, the, at the time, uh, if they found Germans or even Russians, I think they just wouldn't do anything. They just take all the stuff and just leave the bones on the ground and wouldn't openly wouldn't care about it. Yeah. Now uh, I think it's evolved. I think um, even these guys, even if they're doing it, I won't say illegal, but unsanctionedly or something. Uh, now when they find bodies, even if they're going to take the stuff, even the dog tag, they'll they'll still bring the bones to the Germans with a picture mm -hmm. of the dog tag and say, "Here we found this guy uh, okay. such and such a place." So it seems to have calm down a bit i think the germans might also have understood that uh if they want to be able to find these bodies they kind of have to cooperate with these people yeah. and uh, not be on their high horses and say like oh you dug this body up illegally so uh, you're not allowed if you say that the guy's just he's, he's just never going to collaborate with you again and, yes. and you'll just find the bodies spread yes. in the field you know so there has to be a bit of um of uh, yeah, collaboration. Even though it's, of course, it's not archaeological at all. It's not, of course, as good as it should be. It's not maybe not good at all. But at least uh, now they do bring the bodies to the cemeteries most of the time, as far as far as I know. Yeah, it's pretty wild the amount of just kind of um, content that's out there on the internet of how do I put this uh, unofficial archeology span in the East? Um, why I was so attracted to what you do, because here is a guy taking the time and you're actually caring about what you're finding. You're holding up to the camera. This is how this individual passed away. Here's this ersatz um, wire joining of this bone showing how it was fixed, you know, during the war very person-centered and i think that that that's one of the reasons i reached out to you because it was like oh wow here's some content here's somebody actually doing this in a way which i more or less morally agree with yeah yeah um i am fascinated and i also just want to say this the guys you say these guys who are digging up these german helmets are not rich by any means I see helmets get sold for crazy amounts of money once yeah, yeah. they reach but the West. Let so, me let me let me add on to that. So sure, 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 this, sure. this one I said was uh, was in two thousand and one. Now uh, you have lots of Russian collectors, mm -hmm. so guys who dig, who have a lot of money, and who also are very interested in the history, okay. and who if they find a helmet with a name, they're going to keep it, and they're also going to try to research the guy. So you do have people like that, like okay. local local people who do things seriously. 
And um, and uh, I mentioned to you that I went there in 2005 with a guy called Eugene Asafov, who was digging in the swamps with his four or five guy team. And uh, so he was the team leader. He was the guy, you know, selling this stuff over the internet to the States. And he was, he was pretty rich for the time because, you know, already back then it was a helmet for 300 or $400, oh, yeah. depending, you know, or if it's camouflaged a thousand or whatever. Oh yeah. But he was, but the guys who were digging for him, they were just the village guys and he would yeah. give them, you know, it was a lot of money for the village, $10, you know, but he was, he was the businessman and they were just the diggers basically. What a, geez, <laughs> what a hell of a way to make a living. You know, I think it's incredible that you grew up where you did, or at least, you know, after you moved to the South of France, you grew up on a battlefield in a place that had seen war. The United States is so insulated. It's so insulated from combat history. I mean, in, on the East coast, we have uh, civil war battlefields, but those, you know, the, those are pretty much it. Um, yep. And then, you know, you get out more West, you have Indian wars and very small scale documented historical sites. Um, but the United States is just so insulated from the reality of battlefield history. Um, I think that might have a reason why a lot of Americans um, have really simplistic views of military history. But uh, anyways, um, the fact that these Russians are like, well, I need to go make my $10. Let's go dig up bodies. They're on a whole nother level. And that's because the Eastern Front was on a whole nother level. And of course, the economic system in Russia is different. And, you know, this is how people need to make money to feed themselves. That's incredible. It's one way of doing it. It's one way of doing it. Um, Now it became difficult because... uh, now the, this digging has been going on for so long that it, it it's become really hard to find uh, to find German German things German uh, yeah. German bodies all the all the good places have been dug up of course this they're going to be finding things for years to come but to to find stuff you have to, you have to really know where to dig and have proper equipment and uh, have a yeah. good detector because the place has been detected fifty times already so now you have to come with a better detector to find something deeper mm. so um, yeah okay question for you how have you been able to learn or or excuse me let me rephrase what have you learned about graves process the the process of burying soldiers who died in combat from from your archaeological expeditions as i will call them what have you learned about the process somebody would go through from getting either injured or killed to being buried or they buried multiple times in multiple places leading up to after you find them what happens to that body well i learned quite a lot not really from digging but more from uh going through the archives and uh reading books about that and speaking to veterans about that and uh finding out how the dog tags work the german dog tags and all that uh the digging usually it's just either you're on the battlefield and there's a guy buried in a shell hole or in a foxhole or else he's buried in a field cemetery and that's basically it mm-hmm. and uh of course i did learn like what, what the people told me in Russia is that um, like in Russia after the war, there had been millions of killed and I don't even know if there was a single military cemetery. I guess there must have been near near maybe uh, large hospitals and things like that. But yeah. you're at a place like Stalingrad where they say a million soldiers died and there's some tiny cemetery with 5,000 bodies, you know. So where are the other 995,000 of them, you know? So what people told me in Russia is that um, 
a missing soldier's family received less pension than a dead soldier's family. So basically, there was no interest for the government to make any kind of official graves or cemeteries. And the standard procedure for any Russian killed was just bury them in, a, in the nearest hole. So that's what I learned about the Russians. And then about the Germans, I learned that they took extreme care of their, of their war dead. They always made field cemeteries and everything if they could. Stuff was well documented. If you go in the archives, you have the causes of death written and everything. Yeah. But then, the, of course, they also had people who were killed in enemy territory. Mm-hmm. So who they never managed to bury themselves and who were buried in whatever random circumstances by the enemy. And then when the Russians advanced, they, they actually destroyed German cemeteries, you know, yeah. or destroyed them on purpose. You have cases yeah, the vengeance, of, the vengeance of their, their advance was incredible and something people should read about. I, I don't even think it was the vengeance of the soldiers. It was probably like, if, I, I, I can't prove this. I haven't researched it. I don't, I don't have the documents, but I suspect mm-hmm. that orders were given from high up. Like, we don't want German cemeteries. So destroy them, remove the crosses, oh. uh, make a football field over the cemetery, mm-hmm. and let's forget about this. Fair, fair. And um, I, I want to just admit that I'm still learning about the Eastern Front. I know, uh, what I, I know that the, the Russians um, were fed innumerable amounts of propaganda that would stir their hatred of the Germans, the fascist beast. And um, by, I know that by the time I've done a bit of reading about Berlin and the culmination of the Russian war in the East in, in Berlin, and that's some of the most fascinating apocalyptic things I've ever come into contact with. And maybe that's why I've read about it as much as I have. I just know that um, there wasn't any love lost between Russians and not necessarily the, the frontline Russian soldiers, it seems. A lot of the guys who are on the front line were aware more of the reality of the people they were facing. Most of the rape, most of the destruction occurred when the second line, the rear echelon guys moved through. That's been documented in in what happened in Berlin. Um, And it seems the tankers, apparently the Russian tankers would take a specific interest in, in exacting their revenge. They'd been told they had been, or they had earned um, on 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 the civilian populace and among uh, captured folks. Either way, um, what you do on the ground is just another way to get in touch with that that history. Um, yeah, being on the actual in an actual fighting area and seeing just the terrain, you know, uh, what it's like. Imagining what it must be like to sleep here yeah. when it's raining or sp- spend a month there. It's uh, that makes you change perspective and also finding all these shell fragments and finding yeah. damaged things. And that makes you realize the, the violence of the situation, the complexity of the situation. Yes. I, uh, my, my thought process changed substantially after I had traveled and, and I traveled and, and I'd been reading and sitting very deeply with photography that does exist of um, the area around Ypres um, in Flanders yeah. And I went and I stayed for a week and a half right on the battlefield in Airbnb. And I didn't rent a car. I didn't rent. I just walked the whole area. It's not very big. I, of course, there's places I missed. And now I think I got to go back. But I'll never forget going to Polygon Wood, which had been fought and it had changed hands multiple times. It had been on the front line for years. 
And now there's relatively young trees that cover this place, but now it's a forest again, but you can still see things. It's still, the scars are still on the land. And I'm walking in polygon wood and I found a empty shrapnel shell, maybe 88 millimeters, something around there, you know, it's rusted. So you can't take a caliper to it and find out what's, but it was empty. I could see that before I touched it. So I picked it up and I thought, oh, there's a museum right by my Airbnb. I'm going to bring this to this museum and they're going to find this priceless shell and, and they're going to care so much about it. I went to the museum and I could see through the fence. There was like the indoor museum and there is the outdoor. There's stuff. a million shells like that piled up in front of it. Right? I couldn't believe it. It was as tall as me and 20 feet long and they all looked just like that shell. <laughs> so I put that in my bag and I took it home and it's like the coolest thing. It's like a real thing that was there because so much of the stuff that you find here in the States really didn't leave the country, yeah. you know, in terms of militaria, because it's like cotton and canvas. It's going to shred. It's going to. And then when the collectors do find something that may have actually been somewhere, they say, oh, this is in bad condition. It's not worth <laughs> anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, but anyways, that shell going and I also found, you know, 303 British shell casings just in a plowed field. It was just wild how this stuff was there because I had grown up in Oregon in the United States, which is just so insulated from the realities of these battlefields. Well, uh, I had something else I wanted to ask you about before we left. Ah, speaking of shells, yeah. live munitions. How often yeah. do you come into contact with live munitions on these expeditions? Well, you come into contact a lot and you can't really avoid it. Mm -hmm. um, um, people often ask me that question. See, I always uh, ask when I hear, you know, somebody blew up a digging. I always ask, you know, what, what actually happened? Yes. And I still have never heard a single case where somebody actually blew up digging. Mm -hmm. What happens is that they dig, they find something in good condition, a grenade or something, and they decide we're going to empty this. Oh God, they mess with and, it. Yeah, they tinker with that's, it. Yeah, and that's when they, that's when they, when stuff happens. So yeah. basically, the, the, my opinion is, don't mess with that stuff. It's not worth it. Like if you find a shell, if you're digging, you're going to have to pick it up and put it on this corner of the field, but don't do anything else with it. You know, and don't, yes. don't, don't act like an idiot with it. Yes, obviously. When I was in, no, I, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. I don't think it's a hundred percent safe. Maybe one day, you know, you'll, uh, you'll uh, stick your shovel in the ground at exactly the wrong angle. It'll just happen to hit the front of a shell and whatever, but I've never heard of that happening. Anyways, I've heard about, about that happening with machines mm. in Germany. I heard that a guy was digging with a, on a construction site and he hit a, he hit yeah. a bomb and it blew up, but you can understand a machine is much more powerful than, yes. than a human with a, with his shovel. Yes, but the the people I I go I, when I go to, to Stalingrad in the summer, you asked who these Russians are. But what you have to understand now, I didn't mention this, is that uh, in Russia the way it happens now is that there's literally like a popular movement every summer of thousands of people who aren't military collectors, who aren't battlefield diggers, who come to the battlefields and who look for these bodies. You know, mm. so they're 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 very uh, let's say purist. And uh, they don't really care about the items they find. And their goal is to find bodies and they dig them up really carefully. And that's what you see in my, in my Russian videos when you see all these young girls uh, digging up the bodies and stuff. Yeah. Those are people who, they just do it for one or two summers and that's it. So, but they, they do it, interestingly, better than, than some professionals from other countries do it, you know? For, so, and uh, what I want to say is that, yeah, this summer I wasn't there because of Corona, but uh, two people actually got killed with a, with a shell they dug up. 
no. So I did ask what happened, and uh, apparently they were trying to dismantle it. Actually, the people, the guys sent me a picture of it, and you could see that, that it exploded over a piece of cement. Yeah. So obviously they must have gone there and put the shell in the cement and then used the piece of cement as a table to try to do something. Oh, no. So two guys got killed, yeah. One, uh, one young guy, a kid, actually. Oh, God. I mean, so, I, uh, I had a friend here in, in Oregon who is like, oh, look at this really cool, look how nice condition this World War II Japanese grenade is. Look at how nice this is. And he hands it to me. I think I'm looking at it. I said, I'm not going to say his name. I'm like, hey, John, this fuse has been untouched. It has the original bailing wire around it when it was transported. Oh, really? Yeah. See how complete it is. It's a great item. Uh-huh. 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 John, this may be live. You understand that, right? Huh. I hadn't thought about that. I was so excited to collect it. You know? Oh, God. And then I had heard that my Belgian friends I'd stayed with in Belgium. I said, be careful of the munitions. Somebody just got blown up last year. He was trying to cut one open with a, yeah. with a, with a saw. It's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I, I saw a guy doing that in Russia. I, di- I didn't put it in my videos because I don't want to put uh, stuff that's too stupid or too yes. like, it will make people look like too much fools. But one guy was, they found a grenade in great condition. And he was, yeah, he uh, he was sawing it open, and I was standing thirty meters away and filming with the zoom. <laughs> was did anything happen? No, nothing happened. No, no. Okay, good. Oh, jeez. Oh my god. So uh, you've written some books. I we're, I wrote we're, one book, yeah. Okay, you've written a book. Um, we're coming to kind of a natural conclusion of our interview here, but I want to make yeah. sure that if people want to support you and find your book, they can do so. Tell us about your book. Um, tell us about, you know, what brought about its writing, what it's about, and how yeah. people can find it. So I mentioned before finding this uh, mass grave of German soldiers in my village. And uh, so this village is called Villeneuve-Roubert, near Nice. And uh, I wanted to find out, you know, how did these soldiers die? Who were they? And whatever. So I started being really interested in the history of my village. And the unit that had liberated the village was the first special service force, which is quite oh, yeah. famous. And uh, then I just started getting interesting, uh, getting interested in the other villages right beside mine. And then it turned into being interested in the whole uh, campaign of the first airborne task force in southern mm-hmm. France. So mm-hmm. the 509th, the 517th, uh, from the landing zones till the Italian border. And uh, my work method was, you know, uh, if something happened, if they say that, I don't know, there was some small encounter and one or two people were killed, find witnesses who know what happened, like Americans find out the names of the killed Americans, Germans, French, whatever, find the local French people, find out where the bodies were buried, search the area where the bodies were buried, see if anything is left over and basically um, try to rebuild the entire event uh, from all the sources possible. So the end result is my book. So where you have, uh, it describes the advance day by day and it's mostly, mostly oral history. So I say, like, you know, uh, yes. I company of the 517th attacked Saint-Césaire at, uh, on the 22nd of August. And then you have a guy who says, who describes his account, how he yes. climbed up the hill, how he was wounded, and then another guy, and then another guy, and then another guy. And then the local French guy explaining. And then uh, pictures of the guys who were killed, pictures of the Germans who were killed, letters that the, that the families received. So basically rebuilding the whole event. Yeah. And... Um, Apparently, people like it. It has uh, five stars on Amazon and uh, had no bad reviews. And uh, I can understand because you can literally just open it at any page. Yeah. 
and you'll have some guy explaining one of the most probably traumatizing events of his life or most exciting moments of his life. So of course it's interesting to read, you know, uh, that kind of story. Absolutely. Um, best place for people to find that is on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's also on other websites. I'm not sure how many are left now, but uh, you see. can still buy it uh, on Amazon. I've, I made a French version and it's been sold out for a couple of years already. Mm. Okay. Okay. Now it's um, become a collector item in French. Oh. So they sell it for double the price of uh, just like the the uh, it makes me think of the Detre books. Yeah, on, kind of uh, like the that, south yeah. of France. I went to his museum in uh, yep. at Dead Man's Corner, and that's just yeah. That's a whole other podcast. Is is yeah, the yeah. Detre collection and uh, the books he's done, and uh, maybe we'll get a hold of him one day. Um, but uh, you also have a blog and uh, a YouTube channel. Um, you know what? What are those called so that the people can find them? So the blogs. Uh, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm going to be honest with you. The blogs aren't really blogs. They're I call them propaganda sites, mm -hmm. which is just locations where I have. Uh, I briefly describe what I do for digging, for collecting, for whatever with a few pictures and keywords and articles, but I never update them. It's just so if somebody wants to know what I do, he can he can read this information uh, and know what I do and contact me. Yes. And when it comes to information about Southern France, I have the names of all the soldiers I'm interested in on those blogs. So that if a family member uh, says, oh, I wonder what uh, granddad did during the war and looks for his name, he'll find my blog you'll see that it says, if you're a relative of this soldier, please contact me, yeah. and then he'll contact me. So that's the point. Cool. My real blog is the is my YouTube channel, where I, uh, whenever I see something interesting, I film it and try to make a video that's uh, that's interesting for, for, for random people to see who don't sure. know me and who, whatever. And apparently it's been working pretty well because I have uh, lots of views and lots of people who register and yeah. Like yeah, that's how I found you. Uh, I'm, yeah, exactly. a I'm a voracious YouTube consumer, and that's why I decided to put stuff on YouTube. Um, but I want to do it my way, and I want to do it uh, as accurately and as compassionately as possible. Uh, yeah, I, th I thought the same thing. You know, I, I, I watch things on YouTube, and I thought, now I'm I'm watching something interesting, so yes. I can film it, and I can uh, make a mini documentary. Or, of course, it's not a real documentary because I just do everything with Windows sure. Movie Maker and don't even know how to add a voice and everything. So, so it's a primitive, but yeah. it's compensated by the interesting things that I film uh, in most cases, I think. Well, if you ever need help, uh, let me know. I'm a fan and I'd be happy to give you a hand. Um, okay. I'm not that I'm anything great. People can attest to that because of the, st <laughs> the stuff I make is pretty simplistic. Um, but I appreciate, I really appreciate you uh, spending the time, taking the time from your evening to discuss this stuff. Um, if you ever want to come back, you're absolutely invited. I think there's a million things that we can still talk about. I'm already itching to get into <laughs> just airborne operations of Southern France uh, with you. And you have such a unique way to look at that. So the invitation's open. Um, again, I'm going to say it. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. And I'll, uh, I'll be back here whenever you want. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Everybody, um, we have featured an incredible guest today who has just such a unique, a unique uh, view and vantage perspective on the real events that happened um, from 1939 to 1945 in, in distant parts of the world from me. So it's great that we're able to get him on today. He is uh, Jean-Luc Gasson. He was on um, today on the Modern Military History Podcast. As always, I am Andy, your host and presenter. 
trying to bring you uh, interesting stuff like we heard today. Take care. And thanks again for coming on.